If you turn in your Bibles just to sort of prepare our minds for tonight's topic, Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah 66. We've looked uh, last week at the doctrine of Scripture, specifically the inspiration of Scripture and what that means. Basically, that God so superintended the process of Scripture being written that it says exactly what He wants it to say using the words, the precise words that He wants to be used. And so tonight we're going to look at um, two applications of inspiration that the Bible also teaches, the inerrancy and the authority of Scripture. And I want to begin by reading a portion of Isaiah chapter 66. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb, like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering, like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at His word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. A sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to His enemies. Let's pray. Lord, we see in this passage that our religious activities separated from a humble trembling before Your Word, which is delighting in what You delight in. These religious activities are an abomination to You. You want us to listen when You speak and You've spoken in Your Word. You want us to tremble with humility and contrition before Your Word, choosing to delight in the things that You delight in. And Lord, we pray this evening that You would produce in us humble hearts that delight in and tremble before Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, when I was in seminary, I interviewed with our local church for their open position of youth pastor, I didn't get the job. I don't know if that's good or bad. But um, I interviewed. And at the interview, one of the questions they asked me is, what do you believe about the Scripture? And I said to them, I believe the Scripture is the inspired and inerrant and infallible Word of God. And one of the men responded and said, well, what do you mean by inerrant and infallible? And I went, um, I was at a loss for words. So someone other than Samantha has brought me to that point at a loss for words. Uh, Remember the other evening service? <laughs> You'd never see me at a loss of words. Well, there I was. I didn't know what to say. Um, because I had always heard those words. The Bible's inerrant and infallible. 
They've been thrown around in conservative Christian settings, but I didn't have a clue what they meant, though I believed what they meant, I found out. And I uh, started to kind of fumble out a response of how I thought every, you know, the Bible was God's Word and it wasn't ever wrong in any places and that we should obey it. And eventually they were satisfied or at least um, they tired of my answer and they moved on to the next question. Um, but what do we mean when we say that the Bible is inerrant? That word isn't found in the Bible. Inerrant isn't. It's a word that uh, theologians have come up with to describe something they believe the Bible teaches about itself. So what do we mean by that? Webster's Dictionary defines the word inerrant as not erring, not committing errors or making no mistakes. Southern Baptist theologian Millard Erickson defines uh, inerrancy by saying that when we say the Bible is er inerrant, we mean the Bible is fully truthful in all its teachings. And Wayne Grudem offers this definition. The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts, in those documents that the apostles and prophets wrote, does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. And the shorthand definition is the Bible always tells the truth concerning everything it talks about. And so my definition of inerrancy that I'll use tonight is all the words of Scripture are completely true and without error in any part. So what these words of Scripture come together to say to us are completely true and they have no mixture of error. There's no part of them that is wrong. Well, the question we've been asking in our study of Christian doctrine is, how do we know this to be true? And we've always said we have to go back to the Bible for everything that we believe. So does the Bible teach that the Bible is without errors? I think the answer is yes. And the argument is fairly simple. First of all, God inspired the Bible. We studied that last week and saw a bunch of scriptural proofs where the Bible considers itself to be God's Word. And if God inspired the Bible, then His words must be in keeping with His character. And what is God's character? God cannot lie or speak falsely. That's what the Bible affirms in Titus 1, God who never lies. Hebrews 6, it is impossible for God to lie. Numbers 23, God is not a man that He should lie. 1 Samuel 15, the glory of Israel will not lie. So God's character is to be completely truthful. He does not lie. And so if the Bible is His inspired Word, it cannot say things that are false. Therefore, everything that He says, all the words of Scripture must be like Him, completely true and without error in any part. And the Bible teaches that. John 17, Jesus says, Your word is truth. Psalm 12 says, The words of the Lord are pure words. Psalm 18 says, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. Proverbs 30 says, Every word of God proves true. And 2 Samuel 7 says, To the Lord, Your words are true. I don't think it's very controversial doctrine right here. I think it's a pretty simple thing. God inspired the Bible. God doesn't lie. So what His Word says has to be true. Well, why is this important for us to affirm? What's at stake if we deny the inerrancy of the Scripture? And Wayne Grudem uh, helped me see four things that I, I think are, are important reasons to affirm the inerrancy of Scripture and to fight against those who would deny it. First of all, it call, denying the inerrancy of Scripture 
calls into question the trustworthiness of everything that God says. If we say there are small bits and portions of the Scripture that are wrong, God is wrong when He speaks about some scientific things, and God is wrong when He speaks about some historical things. He's just true in the spiritual, salvation, doctrinal parts. Then we have to ask the question, if God says untrue things in His Word some places... How do we know he doesn't say untrue things in other places? Denying the inerrancy of Scripture in any place calls into question the truthfulness of God's Word everywhere. A second thing that's at stake is, if we can go to the Bible and say things that the Bible teaches about science or history are wrong because with modern scientific and archaeological methods we've proven them wrong, then we have placed our scientific historical methods as a higher standard than the Word of God. A third thing that's at stake is we must conclude that the Bible is wrong not only in minor details, but also in some of its doctrines as well. And the doctrine I'm thinking of is the doctrine of the, the nature of Scripture. The Bible, as I just read in one of the Scriptures, says that all of God's words are true. And so if every part of God's Word is true, and the Bible says that, and we find a part of it that's false, then this major doctrinal teaching of God's Word has to be wrong. And that calls into question every other major doctrine. And finally, we have to ask the question, if God can say things that are false on minor, insignificant issues in His Word, then can I imitate God? and lie on small and insignificant things? It's a question we need to ask. And the answer is, well, it's not no, because we can't imitate God as a liar. God doesn't lie. We imitate God and we tell the truth. And we can't lie. The second thing I want to look at is the authority of Scripture. And it's something that we can't miss. Webster's Dictionary defines the, the word authority as the power or right to give commands, enforce obedience, take action, and make decisions. Millard Erickson defines authority as the right to command belief or action. So if we say the Scripture is authoritative, we mean the Scripture has the right, it has the authority to tell us what we should believe and how we should behave for our faith and our practice, what we think and what we do, the Bible gets to tell us how we should be. I like Wayne Grudem's definition. The authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. All the words of Scripture are God's words in such a way that if you disbelieve or disobey any of them, you are directly disbelieving or disobeying God. And that only makes sense. If mom or dad says to son or daughter, do this, and they disobey those words, they're disobeying or disbelieving the one from whom the words came. And so if the word comes from God, it comes with His authority. And because God is the ultimate authority... His Word has the ultimate authority over us. It is the final standard for what we believe and what we do. Well, how do we know this to be true? What does the Bible say about this? Two-part, simple argument. Kind of like the first one. First of all, 
All the words of Scripture are God's words. We've already established that last week. God inspired all of the Bible. Therefore, to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. He spoke it, so it comes with His authority. If, if His truthfulness makes the Scripture true, His authority makes the Scripture authoritative. And let's see some examples of this being confirmed in the Bible. Jesus rebukes His disciples and the Pharisees for not believing the Old Testament. He says in Luke 24, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. And in John 5, He says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. This, there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe Me, for He wrote of Me. But if you do not believe His writings, how will you believe My words? Well, these, these Scriptures were written by Moses. But Jesus says it's sinful to not believe them and to not obey them. And that's because they come with the authority of God. Believers are to keep the words of Jesus' disciples just as they were to keep His. In John 15:20, if they kept My word, they will, keep, they will also keep yours. Why should we keep the words of Jesus' disciples? Because they have authority. And why do they have authority? Because Jesus commands His church through His apostles. 2 Peter 3.2 You should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. In the apostles' writings, Jesus is speaking to us. And so if we disobey what the apostles have written, we are disobeying Jesus. That's why it's so important to conform ourselves to what the apostles tell us to be. Because it's the command of Jesus. And a specific example is, if you disobey the Apostle Paul's teaching, it results in church discipline. 2 Thessalonians 3, If anyone does not obey what we say in this, in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. And Paul affirms that elsewhere. If people don't obey my letters, Paul says, then you put them out of the church because they're in a state of spiritual rebellion. Well, how can Paul say that? It's because Jesus Christ is speaking through Paul as the Spirit inspires what Paul writes. He is a representative of Jesus as an apostle. So he writes with the authority of Jesus Christ. Both those, I think, are pretty simple concepts. The Scripture is true. It's God's Word, and so it has authority over our lives. Now I want to spend the rest of the time giving you some points of application. How does this apply to Christian life, Christian ministry, Christian discipleship? To, to life in a church. First of all, applications for faith and practice. And those are words that mean what we believe and what we do. First of all, the Bible is reliable. You can depend upon the Bible to tell you the truth. You don't have to second guess it. Second of all, the Bible is the supreme standard of truth. Jesus says in John 17, Your word is truth. His Word isn't simply true, it is truth. When God's Word speaks, it is the truth. There's always a certain degree of uncertainty that we have to have with what we read in the newspaper, or on the internet, or in a book, or what we see on the television, or what we hear on the radio, what we hear from other human beings. 
Because they are fallible, finite human beings. They can be wrong. But God's Word is never wrong. The opinions and suggestions and ideas of other human beings, no matter how experienced they might be or successful they might be, are still opinions and suggestions and ideas of fallible humans. But the Bible is from God. And He has all wisdom and He is perfect in His knowledge and He always speaks the truth. And so we can count on His Word and it is the supreme standard of truth. It's the final authority of what we believe and what we do as Christians and as a church. That's why the Baptist Faith and Message says, Scripture is the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. It's helpful, it's important to study church history, to read the writings of Christians who have gone before us and ask, what has the church always believed? What have Christians taught in the past? But in the end... Every creed they've written, every book they've written, every sermon they've preached has to be judged by the final standard of the written Word of God. The third thing for faith and practice, the written Scripture is our final authority. The word, that's, that's redundant. The word Scripture means writing. So what I'm saying there is the written writing is, the, is, our, is our final authority. But I want to point out that Paul tells Timothy that all Scripture, all the writing, the sacred writing, is God-breathed. And he says that His writings are a command of the Lord. His writings. Now, that's not to say if Paul was standing in the gathering of the church in Corinth, speaking audible words to them, that his audible words wouldn't be authoritative. Of course they would. But the apostles are dead. And what we have of the apostles is their writings. And that's what they specify are inspired. Why am I emphasizing this? Well, first of all, I've, I've said the apostles are dead and all we have is their writing. But second of all, I want to emphasize that we can't substitute any other final standard for the written words of God. Things like this. Yeah, I know that the Bible says that. But we know that what Jesus really said was probably this. So like if you're familiar with the Jesus Seminar, a group of so-called scholars that sit around and vote by the standard of themselves on which words of the New Testament, which words of Jesus recorded, were most likely to be actually said by Him. And so they have a color-coded New Testament saying words in this color were certainly spoken by Jesus. Words in this color certainly were not. Words in these colors have varying degrees of Jesus probably said or didn't say these things. And so they can come to you and say, well, what Jesus really said based on our scholarship would be this. We reject that. We don't go behind the text that's given to us. We, we say that what's written there, recorded of Jesus saying this or any other apostle uh, or prophet is what is what's final for us. Or you don't say things like, yeah, I know Peter wrote that, but what Jesus taught was, and Peter doesn't line up with Jesus, so we reject that portion. So it was happening in the Southern Baptist Convention with the, the, the previous edition of the, of the Baptist Faith and Message, where it said that, that Jesus is the standard by which the Scripture is to be interpreted, and people would read things in Paul or Peter and say, well, the Jesus that I know wouldn't write what... Paul wrote, and so by the standard of Jesus, I have to reject this writing. That's wrong. Paul and Peter are inspired, and John and James and so forth. We also um, don't say things like, well, I know Paul wrote that, 
But Paul was intending for the church to follow the tangent of his thought. So one of the things that we're hearing now is, um, yes, Paul calls homosexuality sin. But it would have been disastrous in Paul's day to say that homosexual marriage was okay. So what we see Paul doing is giving us clues, like in Christ there is no male or female, and he's giving clues to the later church that the tangent on which his theology is going is one in which we will later end up in endorsing homosexual marriage. Even though he doesn't, he writes the opposite. No, not the tangent we think we see. I mean, I can come up with any tangent I want if there's a goal I'm after. What did Paul write? What did John write? That's our final standard. And we also don't say things like, well, I know the Bible teaches this, but what science tells us now is we need to be humble with our view of science because science is based on an interpretation of facts. And we as human beings do not have all the facts ever. And so it's, it's difficult to come up with Here is what has to absolutely be true. God has all the facts. And He's spoken in His Word. So if our scientific tests and research comes up with something different than what God, who knows all things, said, we might want to go back and look at our research and the data that we're using. Some implications for Christian discipleship and assurance of salvation. Number one, submission to the Word of God is a mark of true discipleship. Jesus said... To the Jews who were professing to believe in him. Isn't this great? John chapter 8, the Jews come up to him, we believe in you. Jesus says to them, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. First thing Jesus doesn't do is give them assurance of salvation. Oh, you've made this profession, that's great. Don't let let anyone ever make you doubt. First thing, Jesus' first response to them saying we believe is, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Second of all, submission to the Word of God is a mark of eternal life. Again, in John chapter 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Number three, submission to the Word of God is a mark of love for Christ. Jesus answered in John chapter 14, all these things are coming from John. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Let me read that again. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Jesus says, here is what the Father's told me to tell you. If you love me, you'll keep my words. If you don't keep my words, then I know that you don't love me. Number four, submission to the word of God brings assurance of salvation. 1 John chapter 2. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure, there's the assurance, that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now I want to point out something important here. I did not say under any of these four points that submission to the Word of God earns you salvation or earns you the favor of God, earns you um, eternal life. I said carefully in all of these that submission to the Word of God is a mark. 
It's a, it's, it's a display of something. You know that something else is there because of this mark. It's an indicator. What's it an indicator of? It, it shows that salvation has occurred. It shows that we have hearts that have been changed so that we love Christ. It shows that we've been given eternal life. It shows that we've become disciples. This isn't salvation by works. In Isaiah chapter 66, the passage we read, the Lord said, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And he goes on to say that all these religious duties, such as slaughtering an ox and sacrificing a lamb and presenting a grain offering and a memorial offering of frankincense, he said, all these things, all these religious duties are detestable to me. I hate them. Because you don't tremble at my word. That's who I'll look at. I'll look at the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at My Word. Because those who don't tremble at His Word, those who aren't humble, have chosen their own ways, He said, their soul delights in their abominations. Those who don't tremble before the Lord's Word love sin. Those who tremble love what God loves. Trembling before His Word is an evidence that God has done something in your heart. So that you love what He loves. And of course, humble, humility and trembling before the Word of God are an evidence. That's the word I'm looking for. An evidence of a heart that reflects the heart of God. Something's happened in that heart. And of course, it's interesting that that's in the singular. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Because ultimately we know there is only one who has been perfectly humble. We know there is only one who has perfectly trembled before the Word of God and been contrite, who has chosen to delight in what God delights in, and that's Jesus Christ. And every other one of us has failed in that task. And so we need to turn and look at that one that God delights in, the beloved Son in whom He is well pleased, and say, Jesus lived a life of humility and trembling before God's Word on my behalf, he bore the penalty for my haughtiness and pride and love of sin. He died on the cross for those things. And then He was raised from the dead. And so I look to Him for my forgiveness and my perfection and my righteousness. And that's how God is pleased with me, by seeing me through the obedience of Jesus Christ. So salvation doesn't come through works, but trusting in Christ. But when we trust in Christ and God changes our hearts, this sort of submissive attitude to the Word of God will grow in us. As I was teaching this um, to the seminary extension class, many of those people in the class are, a few are pastors and most of them involved in Christian ministry and you are all involved in Christian ministry. I hope you think of yourself that way. But they were involved in specific tasks such as pastoral ministry. And so I gave them some implications for Christian ministry. In light of what we've seen about the inspiration the inerrancy and the authority of God's Word, what should that mean for how we do Christian ministry? First of all, keep the Word of God central to your ministry. That's the command that Paul gives to Timothy. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Devote yourself, Timothy. The thing that you give yourself to as a pastor before anything else is devotion to reading God's Word. Read it publicly. Exhort them from what Scripture says and teach them 
what Scripture means. Be devoted to that. That's what we see in Acts chapter 6 with the apostles. There was a problem with how the food was being distributed to the widows. And they come to them and say, you know, people are being neglected in this food ministry and getting upset about this. And the apostles say, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word and prayer. As important as it is for people to be fed, it is more important that we be devoted to the Word of God. So go find six guys to take care of getting that food out. Because we need to be devoted to the Scripture. And that's what Paul passes on to Timothy. Second of all, preach the Word. Preaching is heralding. It's the idea of a a guy that goes into the middle of a city with an official message to give, and he stands up and he says, here is the message. And it has authority. And you need to listen, and you need to respond. And we are commanded to preach God's Word regardless of what the response might be. Paul tells Timothy again, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, a very solemn charge in light of end times judgment before Jesus Christ, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience in teaching. Because... The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. And having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You know, some people have said that we shouldn't have sermons in church anymore. Not here, but people are saying that. That we shouldn't have sermons in church because the age of the sermon is over with. We live in a postmodern society that is not into addresses and and long explanations of, you know, we need to use videos and we need to use all these fancy technology things because people don't listen to preaching anymore. Isn't that exactly what Paul said? Not not to abandon preaching. He said, look, there's going to come a day when people don't listen to preaching. Therefore, keep preaching. Don't abandon it. Keep preaching. And go around, go around Europe. And look at how many places they built amphitheaters because they loved theater. They loved plays. They loved drama. And Paul doesn't say, put on a drama. He says, preach, Timothy. Even though they were a drama-centered society. Preach. Because God isn't a play. He's a Lord who gives an authoritative command that needs to be believed and obeyed. Not enjoyed. With warm fuzzies. That's what preaching is. Standing up and saying, look. Well, let me, let me read you this quote by Wayne Grudem. It tells us that God's authority, our authority is not in us. Authority is in God's Word. He says this. Throughout the history of the church, the greatest preachers have been those who have recognized that they have no authority in themselves and have seen their task as being to explain the words of Scripture and apply them clearly to the lives of their hearers. Their preaching has drawn its power not from the proclamation of their own Christian experiences or the experiences of others, nor from their own opinions, creative ideas, or rhetorical skills, but from God's powerful words. Essentially, they stood in the pulpit, pointed to the biblical text, and said in effect to the congregation, this is what this verse means. Do you see this meaning here as well? 
then you must believe it and obey it with all your heart. For God Himself, your Creator and Lord, is saying this to you today. That's the task of preaching. Standing up and saying, here's what this text means. Do you see that? If so, God is saying it. You need to believe it and to obey it. That's all preaching is. It's where authority comes from. Not from skill. Not from voice. In Martin Luther's day, uh, some of the congregations are coming back to Luther saying, some of these guys that you're sending to us aren't good preachers. And Luther said, starving men cannot complain about the plates on which their meat is served. If you're getting fed, who cares if it's on china or paper? Too many people are looking for pulpiteers. Number three, expect disobedience to God's Word. Expect disobedience to God's Word. Number one, from the nature of humans, all fallen humans reject authority, especially and ultimately the authority of God. Romans 3 says, None is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside. So we should expect that. When God speaks, people will turn aside if they're not saved. People reject Christ and the gospel because they do not submit to the authority of God's word. 1 Peter 2 says they stumble because they disobey the word. And scripture tells us people will reject the word of God. That's what I just read that Paul told Timothy. The day is coming when people will not endure sound teachings, but they'll go get teachers that tickle their ears and tell them what they want to hear. Number four. God's Word is the means by which His kingdom is established and spread. If you're in ministry, you're in kingdom work. That's your goal, right? To see the glory of Jesus increase, to see His kingdom come, His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we pray for. God converts people through His Word. Romans 10, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. If you want people to be converted, give them the Word. God sanctifies people through His Word. Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. You want people to be more holy and to act more holy? Give them more of God's Word. It will purify them or drive them away. The kingdom spreads through the proclamation of His Word. And that's what Paul says in faith comes from hearing, hearing through the Word of Christ. How are the other lands going to believe in this Messiah and come under His reign if they... If they haven't heard of Him, we need to send messengers to preach the Word so that people in foreign lands can believe and come under the saving reign of the kingdom. Number five, call the church to conform to God's Word. The first sermon I ever preached here, when I preached in view of a call, was in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Paul writes to the churches, to Timothy in this passage, so that they will know how to behave in God's household, which is the pillar and buttress of truth. And remember I said, the church is a pillar. And on top of the pillar, the gospel rests. If the gospel is destroyed, if the, if the, the pillar is destroyed, the thing on the pillar falls. If we care about the gospel, we have to care about the pillar. If we care about the pillar, we need to understand how to behave in that household, which is the church. And the apostles have written so that we might know how to do that. 
And ultimately, the success of a church or a pastor or an evangelist is not measured in their numerical results, but in increasing conformity to God's revealed Word. That's what a healthy and successful church is. One that increasingly conforms itself to what God's Word has said. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. I pray that You'd work in our hearts to convict us of any area where we are not in obedience to it. Give us faith that results in obedience to what You have said because we know that life is in Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen.